0: Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Jared. Welcome to another episode of All Things Crime. I am out of my mind excited about uh, my guests this morning. So I was at CrimeCon about a week ago and I saw a presentation that these guys did. And um, just so that I I make sure I get uh, your pronunciations right, they're both uh, lawyers out of Seattle. And Ann Bremner and Evan, is it Alt? Perfect. (laughs) Oh man, Uh, what a lucky strike that was. I guess even um, a blind squirrel can find an acorn once in a while, right? But these guys did a presentation on a couple of things that uh, I I think you as the listening and watching audience are going to be really interested in hearing, Um, not only the uh, Susan uh, Powell case, which especially those of you listeners here in Utah and even in the Seattle area would have special interest in, but also, Evan, you covered, man, I, I can't even pronounce it right. Um, is it, f- uh, family aside, familicide, familicide, mm-hmm. sorry. Anyway, that's, uh, definitely going to have you get into that. But you guys as attorneys up there for Freibuck, uh, law firm and, um, just your, your, I've been doing some research on you guys and the, the number of cases and the things that you do as attorneys. Um, is, is phenomenal and, you know, congratulations for having such uh, amazing careers already. But uh, to get us started, you know, I'd, obviously, um, Ann and Evan, I want to um, have each of you introduce yourselves briefly, but Evan, to get started, man, you, uh, you, were, you initially uh, majored in kinesiology. How did you end up being a lawyer, <laughs> going, going from uh, kinesiology to law?
0: that you know it's it's a great question i actually out of uh, college i went to work for the seattle mariners and i thought that was going to be my future i worked as a strength coach i thought i was going to do exercise performance stuff and then i had this kind of rare opportunity to go uh, live down in argentina and i and i took a different path and i did that for a little while and i and i came back and i was trying to decide what was going to be best for me what was i going to do and i took the lsats Uh, I did pretty well in the LSATs and I decided to go to law school, kind of on a on a whim, to be honest. But when I was there, I took some trial advocacy classes and I was hooked. Uh, Once I got that opportunity, once I stepped into a courtroom and felt what that was like, it was it was a passion for me. It was something that I knew that I wanted to do. And then I actually interned um, at a firm that Ann used to be at uh, where I first started. And they opened some massive doors for me uh, and included that gave me opportunities to, to go try cases, get in front of judges, get in front of juries. And I absolutely fell in love and um, it was the right choice. I'm glad I
1: did it. Wow, that's cool. So when you say you walk into a courtroom and the feeling of a courtroom, so what, what is it specifically about a courtroom? And maybe when he's done, Anne, you can um, answer the same question.
2: Okay.
0: It's a little bit like walking on stage. You know, when I was in, in middle school, I used to do drama and I and I loved being in front of crowds. I love that, that feeling of performing. And there's there's a performance aspect to it, but there's so much more because you you have these clients who you care so deeply about, so there's that added emotion to it. And I, I don't know how to describe it other than you just you feel confident, you feel good. Uh, and you know that what you're doing has significant meaning, uh, at the end of the day and that ideally you're, you're helping people who have been harmed or wronged.
1: Well, based on that and kinesiology and being a strength coach, you probably should have been a weightlifter, uh, you know, <laughs> one of those professional right. bodybuilders, man, the next Arnold right. Schwarzenegger, right? Right. And how well, about you? What, what, uh, what made you decide to go into law?
2: Well, I majored majored um, in medieval history at Stanford, so um, there was nowhere to go in, in that direction in terms of graduate school. So mine was by mistake. My dad basically said, "You know, he, I took a lot of drama since I was six. I played classical piano and competed statewide, so I was like Evan, like more performer." And my dad said, "You'd make a good lawyer. You know, I'll help you with law school." And so that's where I ended up the first day of law school, I didn't have books or a place to live because so I was disorganized. What a surprise. And a gal I gone to Stanford with quit the first day. So I got her apartment and all of her books and I was off to the races. It wasn't until I clerked for my judge in Seattle, Judge Dixon, the most intelligent and respected judge in King County. He drove a Trans Am with flames down the side and he was the next prosecutor. I watched trials in his courtroom I was hooked. I wanted to help underdogs. Um, I represented the state in sex cases, child abuse cases, and everything else, and then went into private practice. So like Evan, it was like, it just worked for me. I mean, the first time I tried a case as a prosecutor, I'm like, this is where I belong, in a courtroom. And I've never left, and it's been 38 years of practice um, this year.
1: Wow. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fun when you finally narrow things down and you you know some people are they they find it when they first get started like you guys did Mm but uh for me i kind of have bounced around you know i i was active duty army and then i was in some different sales and then i finally uh when my dad uh, i was talking to him and i told him that pharmaceutical sales just wasn't doing it for me (laughs) he was like well come work for me Uh, we want to launch that the uh, mvac system and Mm -hmm. um you know beat our heads against the uh the wall with the food industry for a while and then we finally landed in forensics and i i can't tell you how much uh enjoyment i get when mm-hmm. especially like a detective or, or even a prosecuting attorney or somebody calls me up and says hey you're not going to believe what happened so we were able to solve a case it was 40 years old or something like that it's just to me that that's that's just beyond exciting and so I'm sure you guys, you know, being in the courtroom and you have the, the verdict that you want uh, come out, then the, the thrill of that has to be just off the charts.
2: Well, and, and Evan and I have been together, well, for a long time now. And the moment we got the verdict in the Cox case, um, we were with Ted Buck, our other lawyer that we tried the case with. And as you know, that was a 115 million dollar verdict, you know, for the death of those children. And everyone in Utah knows this case, and in Washington and around the world. But when that verdict came in, there was nothing like it, you know, to see that jury during a pandemic. They'd been on hiatus, and they came back after many months, and and unanimously found in favor of our clients, Chuck and Judy Cox. There's nothing like that. Just like you're talking about, you know, to have a case resolved, to get justice finally you know, for the recognition that children matter and the state has a real duty to protect children. And and the jury spoke very loudly on that issue. But there's nothing like that. In fact, I looked over at Evan, I think I wrote him a note that said, what, what was that? Right, Evan? It was like, what? It was,
0: yeah, it was surreal. You know, I don't think there was a, there was a dry eye in the, mm-hmm. the courtroom. I mean, I, right. I could literally feel a tear coming down my eye as I was hearing this, because the the way the numbers were actually read out, it was read for each individual boy, and the first number that was read was fifty seven point five million dollars. And I remember thinking, did I did I hear that right? You know, right. is this actually happening? And you know, you you begin to think about how much time and effort you put into this, and how committed you've been to this. But but more importantly, sitting right next to us are are the Coxes, and, and you're realizing how important this is to them on this journey that they've had as far as trying to find out what happened to their daughter trying to seek justice for susan trying to seek justice for these two boys um you know ann and i and ted and our whole trial team you know we stayed in a house together for months down, down in olympia <laughs> and it was you know we were working literally 20 hour days where you're you're waking up at 4 in the morning prepping for trial each day and then after trial ends at 430, you go back home, get a quick bite to eat, and then you're up till you know midnight prepping for the next witnesses. Uh, you know, I've, I've sat through a number of verdicts, but that one uh, I think kind of tops it just for how long we've been working on that case and um, just the, the feeling in the courtroom, the fact that we got stuck in a pandemic when everything happened. it was, it was pretty amazing.
1: Wow, that is so cool. And you know i um i actually had a board meeting yesterday and one of the things that we were talking to you know my board about was our 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 marketing our our entire messaging for mvac systems and everything you know everything that we do we've kind of altered it to be more victim focused and i and i know you guys just from mm-hmm. your what you just said obviously you know being focused on uh, Susan and the two boys. Um, and and we'll segue into the you know, actual talking about the case here in just a second. But I, I think a lot of law enforcement and the legal aspects of it, sometimes, and especially the crime lab, I, I have to throw these, you know I, I deal with all three of you, right uh, the, you know those levels. and um, I think there's far too many people in the crime lab that lose focus on the victims and why they actually exist and frankly to me if if it's not all about helping the victim receive justice because they're the one that's been wronged by far the most and if it's not about focusing on them then sometimes i i'm like well why are you even here right so uh, i don't know if you guys have ever felt that way but um I'm, i'm sure uh in the times that you have then hopefully the the Cox case uh, made up for it,
2: right? And when I was a prosecutor, I spent a lot of time with the crime lab people, and in the evidence room, and at crime scenes, you know, and everything else. And you know, I I found because really as a prosecutor, you you're representing victims, even though you represent the state. But the passion that I had and the people in my office had, you know, was extraordinary. We had the first sexual assault or special assault unit in the United States here in Seattle, and I was part of that um, as a young lawyer. And I think that's just so important that you're not getting paid that much to be a prosecutor, that's for sure. In fact, when I left the office, I was like, well, I can finally get manicures and get my hair done and things like that, like my friends in the big law firms. You know. But the fact is, you know, you've got to you know, rely on those people and you've got to put them on the stand and you hope that you can infuse in them some of the, um, you know, the enthusiasm you have for the case and for justice and for victims.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and before we go any further, do you guys know Cloyd Steiger?
2: Uh, I do. <laughs> okay. I <He's>, do. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. How, how do you, I'm sure just working with him and, and prosecuting some of the homicides that he that he worked?
2: Oh, yeah. And I, 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 we had a case I won't go into the details of, but many years ago, I represented Sergeant Cameron in homicide. I, I can talk to Cloyd about that another time. <laughs> it was something else. But the last time i talked to cloyd a um an individual who ultimately shot a police officer in seattle um, had come to see me first um he was upset about a case i was handling for king county sheriff's deputy and and he came in a couple of times and was identified after he shot the police officer was a person that came to see me and I talked to Cloyd and I said, what do you think he wanted? And Cloyd said, Oh, I think he wanted to kill you. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> you know, but he came into the law firm looking for me and ultimately, um, you know, he was convicted, etc. cetera. Cloyd's been here a long time and I know he yeah. does a lot of true crime, um, you know, public work and everything else, but a very fine homicide detective from Seattle.
1: Yeah. I, I first started working with Cloyd in, um, what's called ASOC it's a cold mm-hmm. case society. Okay. And yeah, what a what a fantastic guy. And if I, he's yeah. If if he's any any indication of the, you know, the law enforcement up there in the Seattle area and mm-hmm. you guys are are well taken care of. And I, and I have to also say um out of the entire United States, uh the Washington State Patrol crime lab system is one of the best. Yes. So you you guys are in good hands up there. Yeah. So.
2: I agree on all but, fronts.
1: Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Well, hey, uh, let's let's transition into um what I really wanted to talk to you guys about uh is you know the your presentation down there at CrimeCon. And for all of you listeners down there or, or that are that are watching or listening to this, uh if you if you are a true crime fan, you have to go to CrimeCon because mm-hmm. there are opportunities to hear people like, you know, Ann and Evan here and other, all sorts of other law enforcement and other uh, legal experts that they talk about the the details of cases and uh, scenarios and all sorts of weird things that happen uh, to just normal citizens that I I don't think you'll get anywhere else. And so just wanted to throw a plug in there. (laughs) I've only gone to a couple of crime cons, but I I just don't think I'll miss another one. And and you guys' presentation, honestly, is one of the big sellers on it because i was sitting in there and i have to i have to oh my gosh um evan when you were talking about uh some of these different uh, guys that have basically killed their entire family um i had a few people in mind i'm like oh, i know some guys like that so um but let's let's start with uh Anne, if you could kind of describe your relationship with the susan Susan Powell case?
2: I started in the case before the law firm really did because I was helping Chuck and Judy just get the word out to find Susan. So I started back, you know, after she went missing and long before the boys were killed. I've been with Chuck and Judy for a very long time. I, you know, I think of them as family, as Evan does, of course. And, and, And then, of course, I got involved when the boys were killed. We didn't work on the family law case or deal with you know, whether the kids had visit, there was visitation with Chuck or Judy, things like that, that was a lawyer in Tacoma. But once that horrible tragedy happens, of course, you know, we became involved and looked into what was happening with the state and about 67 red flags they missed with Josh Powell and also the big one, which is ignoring the fact that he'd killed his wife and the kids were witnesses, saying things like mommy's in the trunk, mommy's in the mine, you know, I think all your listeners and viewers know those facts pretty well. We also got involved in a life insurance case because Josh had taken out $3.5 million worth of life insurance um, for his family and his wife. And then of course, changed the beneficiary to Michael, his brother. And so we had all of these legal issues to deal with. But I've been involved I think since I don't 12 years now, maybe even more to 2009. Uh, anyway, um, but with the family also helping them with media appearances, you know, trying this case. I've lived this case for over a decade. And the worst day of my life was the day I heard that the kids were killed. Um, Chuck called me and he said, um, they're gone. And then he said, I'll never forget this. He goes, and we told him so. And that's kind of how the trial ended. You know, we told him so we, we, we told him so. And it happened anyway. So hopefully what we've done here, you want to have a good deed in your life, like we've all been talking about, having your life have some meaning. For me, the biggest meaning I have is the legacy of this case and and what that jury found and the work that we all put in, Evan, Ted, um, me and others in our firm. And of course, the coxes to make this happen.
1: Now, Evan, do you want to add anything to that?
0: sure yeah this is uh this case has pretty much been my entire career uh you know i'm i'm coming up on 12 years of practice and i've been on this case for 11 years and i i first got involved actually because at the after I susan went forgot. missing yeah after after susan went missing josh and his his father stephen were parading around these journals that that uh, susan had authored as a kid and they were trying to. Make suggestions against Chuck and Judy that they had abused Susan. They said there was evidence that uh, Susan clearly had run off with this other guy as evidenced by these journals. Um, So we had actually uh, filed an an injunction to prevent these being published. And interestingly, us doing that and them parading the journals really was kind of the catalyst for this search warrant Mm -hmm. on Stephen Powell's home. They use that as we need these these journals as part of our investigation into Susan's disappearance. So they executed that search warrant, which then in turn, we know what happened. Uh, Stephen Powell gets arrested on the voyeurism or child porn charges. The kids get brought into state custody. And then as as Ann indicated, we weren't involved with the family law proceedings. We were kind of aware of some of the things that were going on. Uh, but I also very much remember the, the day the boys died because I got this very cryptic, uh, email from Anne, um, and I think all it said was uh, the boys are dead. He blew the house up, and I remember thinking, I, "What?" Because there was no there was no uh, uh, title line to it. I'm going, the, "The the boys are dead." And then it took me a minute, and I thought, "Oh my god," you know. Um, and then we've pretty much been been fighting for them ever since, and we've gone mm-hmm. through. Uh, we were in state court, over to federal court, up to the ninth sort of, ninth circuit court of appeals, back down to federal court, back to state court. Uh, here we are. We got that verdict, and the and the case still goes on. So, uh, if if people aren't aware, the state uh, appealed the verdict. So we are now up in uh, the court of appeals in the state of Washington, continuing to to fight for Charlie and Braden.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. That. I see I, I hadn't heard that that they are actually appealing the case and that mm-hmm. and what what is their justification for appealing it's like honestly how could what what did you say Ann in, in the um I want to say there were like 37 major red flags or some crazy number like that yeah, I, I you mean could, you you showed a graphic on that
2: you could double that it, you know it was it was horrendous the red flags that were ignored of course the biggest which was no child has ever died in a secure visitation facility in the united states ever and yet knowing that josh killed his wife you know remember camping in a snowstorm with a two-year-old and a four-year-old you know and she just disappears and that's the story that we all heard but that the fact that he had killed his wife there's probable cause to believe he killed his wife there's a search warrant that's been executed I mean that we all we all know probable cause has to proceed execution of a search warrant yet they have him along with those kids right after he had been ordered to take a psychosexual evaluation and a polygraph you know a polygraph you know he doesn't want to take a polygraph when he's the main suspect in his wife's death and all the other red flags along the way I mean we knew that he tortured animals as a kid that he tried to himself, that he pulled a knife on his mom, that he molested a girl by the pool with his brothers. You know, it goes on and on in terms of what was known about Josh Powell. And of course, Steven's infatuation with Susan, and he didn't seem to mind that there were just so many things. So we had these red flags, 60 some odd, that we showed to the jury. And then at the end, we put them all together. And you can see them all at once. And it only takes one really only takes one for the state to be negligent. And there were some 60 odd red flags. And that was very persuasive to the jury. States can't act this way. They can't when they have children in their care custody and control, they can't act this way. Not the way they did in the, with the loss of Charlie and Braden, those poor little boys. I mean, there's only like a sock left on Charlie after the fire and they live for at least 10 minutes, maybe up to 20 and they were conscious the whole time that they were hatcheted to death and burned.
1: Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together we will bring justice to every victim.